0: Stories, fables, ghostly tales. It's a warm summer here in Australia. The wind blows with the sultry smoothness of a polished stone. I'm sitting here, relishing the dark light, my light, the glow of the screen. Staring into the orifice of creativity, my monitor How I sit here, dedicated to bringing back the dead, the long gone, the tapes riddled with holes, riddled, yes, riddled with skips, pops, heartbeats almost a hundred years old. And they whisper, these holes, bottomless pits of endless noise, and they threaten John Doe's like us like me and you, threatened to put the voices of old away. Voices from the past, echoes of stories that were once beloved, now all but forgotten in the darkest of buzzing, noisy holes. Folks, put your ears on as you would your hat in the hottest of days, And listen to voiceless echoes of the past given a voice. In Philip Marlowe's The Panama Hat. And where there's a will, there's a way.
1: When the will was read, everybody figured she'd been crazy when she wrote it. And that included me. But I changed my mind after spending a night on an island with a pig, a cat, And an ape. Because in reality, they were people.
2: From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character as CBS presents The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's unusual story, Where There's a Will.
3: I had
1: spent the whole day on a noisy job which had concerned itself with a lot of people who talked a lot and said nothing. When I finally locked up my office for the night, I was worn out. As I drove slowly along the street, I was glad to be heading for home in little peace and quiet. At least, that's what I thought. But when I pulled up for a full stop sign only a half a block from my apartment, something happened which brought my little dream of peace and quiet to an end. A car door opposite me flew open and something mighty excited jumped in.
4: I'm being followed. Drive on, please. The law? No, please drive
1: on. Okay, lady, get a good grip on the upholstery. to do it. Now what's the... Say, you look a little pale and beautiful.
4: I'm always pale when my heart's in my mouth.
1: Well, then why don't you swallow once, take a deep breath and tell me who was after you?
4: There isn't much to tell. He was a nasty little man, that's all I know. So thanks for making like Barney Oldfield and good night. Hey,
1: hey, not so fast. <laughs> it's impolite to hitch and run. But
4: look, mister, right now I'm up to my earrings in trouble and that leaves very little time for small talk with strangers. Even nice ones.
1: Well, in that case, the name is Philip Marlowe, which takes care of the stranger part, and I'm a private detective, which makes trouble my business. Where do we go from there? No
4: place. $300,000 worth of hidden bonds, a screwy old lady, and a sculptor with a red beard are too much for any one-man police force, Mr. Marlowe. So again, good night.
1: Before I could say anything, she was out and gone. There was only the heady scent of taboo in the air and the memory of a gorgeous profile with jet-black hair and pale blue eyes. I sighed like a schoolboy and decided to put her under the heading of things that pass in the night. But I couldn't. Why out of all the cars in Los Angeles should she have picked on mine? Well, the next morning as I was walking down the corridor to my office door, I was still seeing pale blue eyes. Maybe that's why I didn't notice the man who waited outside my door until I was almost on top of him. He was well-dressed and about
2: 35.
1: He looked like a man who had forgotten how to smile.
2: Marlowe. Right. I want to compliment you on your behavior last night, Mr. Marlowe. Barbara told me about it. Oh? Come on in,
1: Mr. Uh...
2: Shields. Edward Shields. Would you be interested in aiding three people in a search for more than a quarter of a million dollars in negotiable bonds? One percent of which will be yours if the bonds are found? Uh, being a fairly fast man with figures, yes. Yes, I was. Splendid. I'd like to few details. Well, Mr. Marlowe, my aunt, Bernice Mayhew Shaw, died, leaving her entire fortune to charity, with the exception of the bonds I mentioned. Those are to be divided equally among three of us, the sole heirs, if we find them within 24 hours. Hmm, that sounds like something you dream about after a midnight snack of pizza and pig's knuckles. Perhaps, but you didn't know my aunt. Beside myself, the beneficiaries are Barbara Haynes, the girl you met last night, she was Bernice's personal secretary. And another nephew, Harlan Crane, who, at the moment, happens to be a sculptor. Happens to be? Six months ago, he was a sailor. Before that, a <laughs> writer. Without even a rejection slip to his name. My cousin is irresponsible, impetuous, and completely self indulgent uh, The will but itself, is... Mr. Shields, what are the exact conditions? At precisely noon today, the three of us are to meet with Luther Willard, my beloved aunt's lawyer who will give us each a large sheet of tissue paper covered with specific markings. Individually, the sheets mean absolutely nothing. But combined, one over the other, the transparent sheets form a coherent map to the location of the bomb. But uh, why all the intrigue? My dear departed aunt had a peculiar sense of humor. In addition to this, she was never particularly fond of any of us. She was sure that our individual shortcomings would make cooperation among us impossible even for so short a period as 24 hours.
1: And the fact that a man followed Miss Haynes last night convinced you that there was something
2: to that, huh? Eh? Convince me? No, he may have been nothing but a person at you. Nevertheless, I do feel that to play safe for fourth party, a custodian of the map, so to speak, would be advised. That's him. fine. When do I go to work, Mr. Shields? At noon, at the lawyer's office. However, I regret that first you must be approved by the third heir. I don't like to ask this, Mr. Marlowe, but would you mind very much calling on my cousin, Harlan, personally? Not at all. As a matter of fact, I think he might prove very interesting. Yes, I am sure he will. As interesting as an ape in the zoo. I
1: felt like saying, look, Shields, I'm not as gullible as I look. But then I thought a client's a client, and I decided to play along. Harlan Crane, six-foot, red-bearded giant, talked as he worked, wielding a ten-pound sculptor's mallet like it was an 18th-century quill. I'll
5: be frank with you, Marlowe. Money isn't everything to me and never has been. Over a $100,000 will buy a lot of marble.
1: Half the state of Vermont, I'd say. But tell me the point, Mr. Crane. Do I get your seal of approval?
5: Oh, I imagine you'll be all right. Anyone who can get by shields, the all-American screws ought to do.
1: Thanks, a million.
5: And not being personal where you're concerned, it's just a matter of facing a fact bluntly. Edward Shields is conniving, avaricious, and dull. I heartily recommend him to nobody. And the girl, Barbara, you feel the same way about her? No, I don't. The truth of the matter, Marlowe, is that I know very little about Barbara Haynes. But what I do know, I like very much.
1: Yeah, that I can understand.
5: Well, do you realize that once you have the whole map in your possession, you're worth an awful lot of money?
1: Of course I do. The whole map, I have a market value of exactly (laughs) $300,000.
5: That's right. $300,000, dead or alive.
1: (laughs) I know it was small of me, but I didn't exactly see the joke. And things got less funny as time went on. Later, as me and my trio got off the elevator at the lawyer's office, old Luther Willard, Aunt Bernice's attorney, was waiting for us, so excited he could hardly talk.
6: I... I've been held up. What? what? Yes. A little man. He wanted the maps. A little, a little man? Little... Dark complexion? Yes, yes. Had a scar on the side of his neck. How yes. Are the maps all right? Hmm? The maps? Oh, yes, yes, they're all right. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute, everybody. Give him a chance. Mr. Willard, tell us exactly what happened. Uh, this is Mr. Marlowe. We told you about him, Mr. Willard. Uh, of course, yes, yes. Uh, can come into my office. Sir? You see, I was putting some papers into my safe, and this little man stepped up behind me and oh. demanded the maps. Or were they in the safe? No, no, thank heavens. Or make yourselves comfortable. The please. maps, Mr. Willard. Where are they now? Oh, right here where they were all the time. Here under the blotter on my desk. <laughs> Clever out of me, wasn't it? <laughs> Wax seals, still intact. I'll take
1: all three of them right now, Mr. Willard. That is, if there are no objections. <laughs> all right, then I guess we can be on our way.
6: Well, hold on, Mr. Marlowe. There are still two things you people must know. First, in the event the bonds are not recovered within the 24 hours, I am instructed to open another sealed envelope, which I am happy to report is kept in my bank vault. That envelope contains a complete and simplified map and is to be turned over to a designated charity. And second, if any of you die before the allotted time is up, the bonds are to be divided among the surviving persons. And if none of us survives, Mr. Willard... Why, in that case, the bonds again go to charity. You see, Harlan, your aunt was a very generous woman.
1: After arranging to meet with the three heirs at Shields' place later that afternoon, I headed for the nice and public public library, where I figured I'd be able to examine the maps in safety. By placing the three maps exactly one over the other, I saw that the bonds were hidden on the lodger of two squares of land called Twin Islands, which were the personal property of the late Bernice Mayhew Shaw and located in an Indian lake in the San Bernardino Mountains. As I left the library with the three maps in my pocket, I felt like a well-fed mallet on the opening day of hunting season.
7: Then I knew I was being followed.
1: As I slipped into a doorway and turned, I saw it was the nasty little man with the scar.
7: All right, you. We're through playing
1: tag. No, let me go. Not yet, Shorty. Not until you talk loud and clear.
8: No. No, don't hit me. Please. Please hit me down. I'll talk. I'll tell you everything. All
1: right. If you're sure you can get it all straight the first time. There. Now, the whole story. Beginning, middle, and end.
4: Yeah. Yeah, like you say. Whole story. Okay. Starts like this thing.
1: By the time I figured out that it had been the sawed off end of a broomstick that had slammed my stomach up against my backbone, the little man was out of sight. Another five minutes went by before I quit calling myself Sucker and I started to think straight. The nearest public locker was in the Santa Fe Trailways bus depot on Cowinga. I went up there and deposited two thirds of the map for safekeeping until we were ready to leave for Indian Lake. And I found a telephone and a half a dozen calls later I knew that a caretaker named Jumbo was the sole inhabitant of Twin Islands. And my last call was to him. I wanted some kind of a welcoming committee ready for us. When I left the phone booth, it was only one o'clock. So I returned to my apartment where I figured I'd rest until three, when we were all to meet at Shield's place. But that was my second mistake. Because the moment I closed my apartment door, I was positive I wasn't going to get much rest. I had an unannounced visitor. Yeah, you look surprised,
2: Mr. Marlowe.
1: I am. I didn't recognize you at first without your
7: broomstick. Yeah, I traded that in on this twenty-two target pistol here.
2: More expensive,
7: but it's better. Makes me as big as you are. Maybe bigger. Yeah, but how much does it do for your personality? Quite a bit. Gives me poise. And poise gives me manner. So in asking for that nap in your pocket, I'll even say please. Come on, Milo. I won't say please twice.
1: No, I don't think you would.
7: Here. Thank you. Now, before I go, one more thing. The hall outside here is straight and narrow, right to the stairs, and that makes it fine for shooting. So after I step out, don't do anything rash. For a while.
3: (laughs)
1: So, loving life as I do, I didn't do anything rash for a while. In fact, I could have whipped up a nice seven-minute frosting before I moved at all. And I phoned the three heirs to get together at my apartment. When I finally had them all seated in front of me, I related the saga of the little man, including my premonition that one of the three present was signing his paychecks. Of course, I got nothing but cupidol innocence out of any of them. So after adding that we'd get underway just as soon as the missing one-third of the map was returned to me, I threw my trench coat over my arm and told them I was going for a walk. But before leaving them, I reminded them that whoever was behind the little man could fire him, because I would never have kept all three maps in one place anyway, unless all of the heirs were on hand to watch one another. Then I left. I hadn't walked more than a half a block up Franklin when I stopped at the sound of Barbara running after me.
4: Phil, I'm scared. Harlan and Shields are acting like a couple of wild men, calling each other every name under the sun.
1: What'd you expect? Chit-chat about the weather? I quit acting like a Bobby Soxer within squealing distance of Sinatra and try a cigarette. It'll calm your...
4: What is it, Phil? Why are you smiling like that? What's wrong?
1: Nothing's wrong, Barbara. Nothing. (laughs) It's just that I found this in the pocket of my trench coat when I went for my cigarettes. It's the map. That's right. The missing third. It's back already. When that missing third part of the map turned up so fast, I figured the heirs had decided to play ball. But I made a mental note to keep my eyes on them anyway. At three o'clock, I went to Edward Shields Hillside House in Laurel Canyon for the scheduled meeting. Shields wasn't home yet, but Cousin Harlan was there admiring the view. Barbara showed up a few minutes later in a convertible, and Shields arrived last by cab. It finally began to look as though we might actually
2: start out all together. Well... I see we all arrived, safe and sound. Yeah. Disappointed? Only by your clumsy attempts at humor, Holland.
4: Stop it, boys. Let's get started. Phil, have you looked at the map? Where are we going?
2: To Indian Lake. It's a four-hour drive, so if you're all ready, I suggest we get started. Very well. I'll go up to the garage and get the car.
5: So Aunt Bernice hid the bonds in a roost at Twin Islands, eh? Well, well,
2: well.
3: (laughs)
5: Nobody seemed surprised
1: at the location Aunt Bernice had chosen to hide her bonds. In Holland, Barbara and I stood on the front porch watching Shields as he climbed the very steep driveway to his garage in the car. But Barbara got more of my attention than Shields. Ah, she made a mighty dreamy picture. She leaned casually back against the rail of the porch. She wasn't aware that I was watching her. And I suddenly saw her go tense, her eyes filled with fear, and I quickly turned to follow her stare. Shields' car was going at a rapid clip down the steep driveway. I still couldn't figure out Barbara's concern, and then she started screaming.
3: The car's out of control. The car
1: was headed for the edge of a cliff. His
3: brakes are out. You go over. Go the tree. The tree stopped him.
2: Shields, are you hurt? No, no, I'm... All right, the, the brakes, I, I tried to stop him.
5: hadn't
4: hit that tree.
2: Shields sure have gone over the edge. Let's have a look at
5: those brakes, Shields.
1: Well, no
5: wonder. What is it? Brake
1: lines broken. Every drop of fluid drained out. I might have been killed. No might about it, Shields. We stood there for a while, all looking at one another, but nothing was said. Brake lines rarely snap accidentally. I remembered that Harlan had been at Shields' house early, and the car had been in the garage And Barbara. Well, I had to admit that she actually had anticipated the car going out of control. Well, the 24 hours for finding the bonds were slipping by, and I knew we had to get to Indian Lake. We held a short powwow without passing the peace pipe, and we decided to take Barbara's car. We picked up the rest of the map, which I checked at the bus station, and we shoved off. After a four-hour drive that was about as relaxing as the thought of an overdue time bomb in a day nursery, we finally pulled up to the shores of Indian Lake. Jumbo, the caretaker, was waiting at the dock. He knew how to handle a boat, and a few minutes later we could see Twin Islands. We headed for the smaller of the two where I could make out a rambling lodge. The other island, a quarter of a mile away, seemed deserted. Shields was the first one to show up. Here,
5: Barbara, let me help you. Run along, boy. I'll help Barbara.
4: Thanks, Harlan. Well, Marlow, what now?
1: Well, first we go up to the house. Oh, Jumbo, you got everything ready for us?
8: Hey, Jumbo. Huh? Oh, oh, sure. Sure, everything's ready, Mr. Marlowe.
5: It's like you said, I opened four of the upstairs rooms. Open the rooms? We're not going to sleep out here, are we? We're going to try.
4: But this isn't a vacation. We're here to find the bonds and get out. You realize it's almost nine already?
1: That leaves us just 15 hours, Marlowe. Yeah, I know. I got a good watch and I count to 24 and I'm also giving orders to you three.
5: Don't get high-handed, Marlow. You're an employee, of ours, and that's all. Let's get the map together and start looking for those bonds right now.
1: Take it easy, big man. The bonds are hidden on the other island. The map is as tangled as a second-hand spiderweb. Wouldn't get anything at all down in the dark. Not your sure. Look, huh? you people hired me to help you find those bonds. If I have to get nasty to make you take orders, I can do that, too. Now let's play like we're smart and go up to the lodge and relax.
4: All right, Marlon. But remember, we'd better have those bonds by tomorrow, or someone else will be nasty. Very nasty. And I mean me.
2: What? You too? <laughs>
1: Getting the three heirs settled down at dinner table was quite a chore. And when I was sure they'd keep an eye on each other, I slept outside. I hid one third of the map in a drain pipe. Then I went upstairs to my room and I hid another third in the window shade. Now well, the maps were settled and I began to think about other things like... like the accident, to Shields' car. There were too many accidents and coincidences to suit me. So I decided to drop in on Cousin Holland's room to see what I could see. After 15 fruitless minutes, I was about to leave when something in the wastebasket caught my eye. A corner of a half-hidden handkerchief monogrammed HC. I had just picked it up when I saw Jumbo standing in the open door.
5: The handkerchief there in your hand, had blood on it?
1: No. Now, it looks more like brake fluid. And in this case, it's practically the same thing, huh? Eh? I think we'll leave it right here in the wastebasket, Jumbo. Oh, did you want something? Just
7: wanted to say I'll be in my own place out back if you want me. Okay. You know where Mr. Shields is? It's out in the veranda. Alone? Yeah.
1: Thanks, Jumbo. If I need anything, I'll call you. Good night.
2: Shields! Oh, Oh, it's you, Marlowe. What's wrong?
1: You sound like a man expecting trouble. <laughs>
2: I was nearly killed in my car this afternoon, and I don't think that was the end of it.
1: Yeah, don't stand too close to high windows.
2: Thank you. It's comforting to know that I am not alone in my suspicions. Maybe, uh... How are you betting? On the
1: beauty or the beast?
2: Don't be absurd. I hope someday to marry Barbara. Yeah? Well, a guy might be beating your time right now with a sculptor's mallet. You may be naive, Mr. Marlowe, but Barbara isn't. I saw them just a moment ago walking down to the boathouse. Harlan's galloping after her like a half-baked idiot, as usual. But if Miss Haynes prefers me, what can he do about it?
1: There was an answer for that, but it seemed a little obvious under the circumstances. A few minutes later, Shields went inside, and I made a beeline for the boathouse to water down a certain hot-headed sculptor named Harlan. When I got within earshot, I knew I'd be as welcome as Hooping Cough at a glassblower's convention. So I stopped and listened.
5: Robert Delian falling in love with you. You know that, don't you? Let me hold you close.
4: Harlan, Oh, Harlan.
5: This is real, Barbara. For the first time in my life, I'm truly in love. I want to do things for you, make you happy.
4: Please, wait. I'm not completely free. There are still ties with Edward, you
9: know. Jesus,
5: that fat, stingy Babbitt. He's no man for you. Why, if he so much as touches you from now on up, Marlowe, you cheap snooping
1: ears up with. this... He's dropping some minor vice compared to some of the shenanigans going on around here. What do you mean by that? A word or the wise is sufficient. You, I'll give a few more. Now, somebody's trying to cut our little triangle down to two sides before noon tomorrow. What I've seen so far I don't like, so I'm warning everybody. Just what are you
3: accusing me of?
4: Boy? Harlan, stop it. Don't be a fool. You cavemen control yourselves until those bonds are found. Come on, Harlan, let's go in. Good night, Marlowe. Don't get your head caught in any transom.
1: Deciding sleep wouldn't be very healthy for a man in my position, I decided to sit up that night. And it was about 2 o'clock when I looked out the window and saw something mighty interesting. A light was moving on the other island opposite us. I got hold of General and went over there as fast as we could.
8: We're beach. That light's dead ahead, Mr. Marlowe. Looks to
5: me like it's up in the picnic shelter.
1: Yeah, I'll see you later, John. Who's there? Guess who? Oh,
4: Marlowe. I didn't hear you come up. The wind's too strong, I guess. I'm glad to see you. Spooky here all alone.
1: Oh, sure, sure. What's the idea? Decide to do a little
6: freelance prospecting?
4: Yeah, no, that's right. I had a hunch she hid the bonds here in the base of this table. I guess I was wrong. Oh, come on, Marlowe, limber up. You can't blame me for trying.
1: Listen, beautiful, don't flap your eyelashes at me. I can't see anything but double crosses right now. All right, if you've had your fun, let's go back to the lodge. Don't be that
4: way, Phil. Phil, the sun will be coming up in two or three hours. Why not wait for it here with me? Barbara,
1: baby, don't burn up too many calories with that routine. Because I only keep one third of the map on me.
4: You think you're so smart?
1: Bright ideas hatching that cute little brain of yours too. Now let's. Oh, comes the gun with a pearl handle, no less.
4: Stay away from me, Marlowe. Over there. Hey, what's going on here, Eddie? Any... Jumbo! Look
1: out, Jumbo! Jumbo stepped into the light, and Barbara turned. I made a swipe at a gun hand that knocked pistol, person, lamp all over the picnic shelter. I found the gun and gave it to Jumbo. Then I started to pick up an assortment of knickknacks that had spilled out of a purse. But I never finished. Because one of the items made my eyes pop. It was the monogrammed handkerchief covered with brake fluid that I'd found in Harlan's room. It all made sense now. It tied up everything that I'd suspected right along. Only two of my trio had planned to split up the $300,000 worth of bonds from the first. As I ran for the motor launch, I yelled at Jumbo to bring Barbara over in the rowboat.
5: All the way back, I
1: had the panicky feeling that I was probably too late. When I sneaked in the front door of the lodge, there were still two voices, and they came from the open kitchen door. My hand on my gun, I etched along the wall and
2: peeked in. Seals, you're a fool. Fool, Perhaps, but I'm going to kill you and have a perfect case of self-defense. What are you talking about? You're hopelessly framed cousin, Harlan. I ruined the brakes on my own car. I planted your handkerchief, stained with brake fluid in your room. Marlowe found it. He's convinced that you tried to kill me. He's also convinced that he was brought into this whole thing by coincidence. He doesn't know that he was deliberately involved in our search for the bonds, just so he'd make a reputable witness. You're out of your mind. But not at all. I'm going to kill you and say it was self-defense. Marlowe
8: will testify that you tried to kill me before. What Marlowe's be going together. to do is blow your head off if you don't drop that gun, Shields. Marlowe.
1: Yeah, Marlowe. Who knows he wasn't brought into this thing by coincidence, but has stuck around to see the fireworks and who almost saw them just now.
8: Bill, what's happened? Barbara. Couldn't you hold Marlowe
1: on the other
5: island? You shut up, Shields!
1: Barbara's little mistake was that she should have gotten rid of Harlan's handkerchief after she took it out of his room so he wouldn't see it.
6: Barbara, I don't understand. You you planned all this with Shields against me?
4: Well, I I did in the beginning, Harlan. I changed my mind when I fell in love with you. I I let Marlowe find the handkerchief in my purse. I, I wanted him to stop Edward. Oh, darling, don't you... Come
1: on, Miss Bankhead, cut the dramatics. The show's over. Let's have it straight, huh?
4: All right. We might as well if we're going to find those bonds before it's too late. Edward and I did plan it. We even hired the little man who tried to get the maps from you. And
1: when that didn't work, you planned to get rid of Holland and split the 300 grand.
4: So we failed. So what? We're right back where we started. A 100,000 apiece. Now let's go find those bonds. Not
1: so fast, beautiful. What happened to Holland just now was a little more serious than a hot foot. It was attempted murder. He can slap you two in the jug this minute if he wants to. But I'll leave it up to him. Okay, Holland, what do you say? It's your move.
5: No. I've got a better idea. Marlowe, one third of that map is mine. Give it to me. Okay. There it is. Harlan, what are you going to do?
4: Harlan, no. Don't burn it.
8: There. Now we all lose. Now
3: none of us will get the bonds. That's probably how Aunt Bernice wanted it anyway.
1: It was almost noon. I was standing on the veranda of the lodge, and a scrawny old crow was perched up on the roof. I saw Barbara and Shields quietly pull away in a boat with Jumbo, and I saw Holland lumbering off to the far end of the island to sulk. And as I watched the three of them, I couldn't help thinking. A pig in a pinstripe suit, an ape with a red beard, and an alley cat in nylon.
3: Yeah. Keep
1: laughing, Aunt Bernice. You were right. Greed, treachery, and rashness don't mix, even for 24 hours. And the 1% of the bonds I was to get? Well, that's my contribution to charity. Who knows? Maybe I can take it off my income tax.
2: Adventures of Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler, stars Gerald Moore and is produced and directed by Norman McDonald. The Panama Hat.
1: I was sitting in my office bombing the ashtray on my desk with paper clips, wondering what kind of a job a private detective gets when clients stop calling completely. I was seesawing between the picture of me as a well-starched huckster and the more comfortable portrait of Marlowe, author in English tweeds. Man of distinctions. And the telephone brought me to a rude awakening. Marlowe speaking.
9: My name is Isabel Gordon, Mr. Marlowe. I must see you at once. My husband, Bruce, is in terrible danger. Could you possibly meet me in an hour at the Pelican Inn? It's a small roadside place on the way to Malibu. I'll explain everything then.
1: Pelican Inn. One hour, Mrs. Gordon. <laughs> the Pelican Inn was strictly a liquor license with chairs and a bored piano player in one corner grinding away. The place was empty, and I was about to order a drink when the front door opened and a woman entered. She was tall and thin and right out of Harper's Bazaar, from double-lap ankle-strapped shoes to close-cropped hair. One look at her fear-crowded eyes, and I knew it was Isabel Gordon. I got up and introduced myself. Then we went to a table, and she started to
9: talk. For two weeks now, Mr. Marlowe, my husband Bruce has been receiving unsigned, threatening letters... I'm almost sick with worry. I, I don't know what to do.
1: Now, wait a minute, Mrs. Gordon. The first thing to do is to get hold of yourself and tell me the whole thing right from the beginning.
9: Yes, all right. Well, first of all, Bruce and I have only been married a little more than a year. We're living with my uncle, Avery Fairchild, on an estate out beyond Malibu.
3: I see.
1: What does your husband do for a living, Mrs.
9: He's a photographer.
1: Movie or commercial?
9: Well, at present, it's neither. You see, Bruce has been terribly unsettled since the war. Lost sort of and in... mm. He got interested in photography, and it's been a great help to him.
1: But he doesn't exactly work
9: at it. Huh? Well, he's converted one of the rooms in the guest cottage into a studio, and he spends almost all of his time there experimenting with portrait work. But he doesn't actually have a job, if that's what you mean.
1: How does that appeal to your Uncle Avery?
9: Oh, I'll be honest with you, Mr. Marlowe. My uncle thinks the sun rises and sets on me, but with Bruce...
1: It's total eclipses, it?
9: I'm afraid so. All his life, Uncle Avery has been concerned only with dollars and cents. He, he simply doesn't understand or sympathize with an artist's viewpoint. Uh-huh.
1: Now, what about these unsigned letters?
9: Well, Bruce has been getting them for the past two weeks. They're always made up of words cut from newspapers and pasted on ordinary paper.
1: That's a cheap stunt. What do they say?
9: Each one threatens my husband's life. Yet both he and Uncle Avery consider them nothing more than the work of some harmless Craig. In spite of the fact, that for the last several days, I've seen a strange man lurking around our place every night.
1: Can you describe him?
9: No. No, except he's about your height and build. Is that all? Yes. No, I... Wait a minute. There is something else. Each time I saw him, Mr. Marlowe, he was wearing a white Panama.
1: Well, that's not much to go on. Tell me, why haven't you called the police?
9: Uncle Avery wouldn't hear of it. He hates publicity, dreads it. That's why I suggested contacting you, a private detective.
1: That's sort of a bodyguard for Bruce, huh?
9: Yes. However, Mr. Marlowe, Bruce is somewhat temperamental, and I know he'd rebel at the thought of being watched over, so I'd I'd rather you posed as a, a house guest, an old college chum of mine, perhaps.
1: My fee is 25 a day plus expenses, Mrs. Gordon.
9: Oh, price is all right, Mr. Marlowe. Let's see, it's a little after seven now can you be at our place at Malibu at 9? I think so.
1: But as a fellow alumnus, Isabel, one last question. Where'd you go to college?
9: Southern California. Why?
1: Well, I was afraid you might say Vassar. After Isabel left, I remembered that I was already on my expense account. So I had a tasteless, cold, hot, blue plate special and a burned cup of coffee. And I stepped out of the Pelican Inn and headed across the paved parking lot to my car. It was already dark, and I was admiring the full moon and the beautiful wash it made over the ocean when it happened.
3: Hey, Mister! What's that? You all right, Mister?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Thanks to your sounding off.
8: That nut was aiming right for you.
1: Yeah, yeah, it looks that way. Did you happen to get his number? No. What no, about his I face? Think... Can you describe him? No.
8: Matter of fact, I
1: only noticed one thing. What was that? The hat he was wearing. It was a white Panama. I tried to be broad-minded, but there was no other way to look at it. The gentleman in the white Panama hat definitely meant business. I returned to my apartment in Hollywood where I shaved, showered, and packed. Then I headed for Malibu. At a quarter to nine, I was inside the grounds of the Fairchild Estate. Another mile, and I was at the front door. When I entered, Isabel greeted me like I was a keg of brandy around the St. Bernard's neck. Then we waded through an inch-thick carpet to the library where Uncle Avery... Fat, bald, and looking like he'd just bitten into an underripe persimmon was waiting. I wasn't asked to sit down, and I wasn't out for the cigar. Avery Fairchild was not one to waste time.
8: I'm a very rich man, Mr. Marlowe. As such, I'm a target for all kinds of fortune hunters, confidence men, and cranks. In my lifetime, I've been threatened and pestered by a score of crackpots, each one slightly more psychopathic than the last. It never bothered me, and it never will. However, in this case, the approach is a bit different. Meaning you think somebody's trying to get at you through your nephew, huh? Never refer to him as my nephew. My niece's husband, if you please. And don't forget it. Uncle Avery. Isabel, my feelings about your husband are no secret.
9: You're being unfair, Uncle Avery. Just because Bruce is an artist and he... Artist,
5: is he?
8: Why, Isabel, that man's no more an artist than I am a horse jockey. Good
5: evening, everybody.
9: Hello, Bruce.
5: Hello, darling. You were saying something, Uncle Avery?
9: Bruce, um, I want you to meet Philip Marlowe. We were great friends at school, and when I heard he was in town for a while, I insisted that he spend a weekend with us. How
5: do you do, Mr. Gordon? It's a pleasure to have you with us, Mr. Marlowe. You're very welcome.
9: I do the welcoming around here, Bruce. (laughs) Mr. Marlowe's had a long trip, and I'm certain he'd like to turn in early. Bruce, darling, he's going to stay in the guest cottage the room next to your studio. Will you show him there, please? Oh,
5: I'll be glad to. By the way, Isabella, I'm going to work late, so I'll say good night to you now.
9: Good night, dear Good night, please. Please, please be careful.
8: Yes, Bruce, by all means, be careful. Remember, the true artist belongs to posterity. Or something.
3: The
8: guest
1: cottage was only a landscape top skip and a jump from the museum that Uncle Avery called home. And as Bruce and I strolled along a flagstone path, I feigned a deep interest in photography. That was all my host needed. He struck at the bait like a shark with malnutrition.
5: Well, Mr. Marlowe, it didn't even occur to me that photography might be one of your hobbies. Isabel never said a word. Good for Isabel. I'm strictly a dabbler. Tell me, Mr. Gordon, how long have you been at this? Portrait work? Hmm. Oh, about six months. You see, I divide my time between my studio here and a school I attend in Hollywood. That way I capture both the theory and practical experience at the same time. Now, well, here we are. Would you like to see the studio? Yes, I would. Let me get the lights.
1: Well, this is all right, huh? And larger, two cameras, dark room.
5: Have you your pictures? Yes. Yeah. What do you think of them?
1: Uh, I don't know
5: exactly. They're certainly different, huh? They are unusual, aren't they? Yeah. You see, Marlow, each picture is actually made up of two separate studies which are superimposed. I call it uh, interpretive photography. Uh-huh. Now, uh, uh, this
1: one. A splash of light and a bent pipe cleaner?
5: The sun and the plant shoot. It's called metamorphosis. Oh. Well, what about that one there
1: in the corner? The uh, girl's face and uh,
5: clouds. clouds Mr. Marlowe, you'll excuse me, but that picture is ready for display. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to pry.
1: I thought it was just another interpretive
5: photograph. Well, it's not. That is, it, it isn't finished yet. Now, Mr. Marlowe, I'm afraid I've forgotten what my wife said about your long trip. Shall I show you to your room? Yes, please do, Mr. Gordon.
1: room on the other side of the guest cottage was wider than Hollywood Boulevard. After Bruce apologized for his display of temperament and bid me a polite good night, I climbed into the silk pajamas that were laid out for me, stretched out on the bed and tried to figure who belonged to the white Panama hat. Right an hour passed and I wasn't getting any sensible answers, so I switched out the light, put my gun on the table next to me and snuggled into what felt like a mile and a half of mattress. I was almost asleep. And the clatter of a shovel falling on the walk outside brought me straight up in bed. I grabbed my gun and made for the door. The second I threw it open I knew that I'd made a mistake. Whoever kicked over that shovel had heard me. And met me with a large fist that came straight at my face. Oh As I came back into the world. I was embarrassed to find myself alone and flat on my back. When I started to get up, I felt like the L.A. Downs, water boy and all, was run over my face. My gun was a few feet away, and when I went to pick it up, I stopped short. It was a souvenir from the man with the great big fist. A gold cigarette lighter It was engraved to Skipper on his birthday. Putting it in my pocket, I picked up my gun and made for Bruce's studio. He wasn't there. I threw on some clothes and went back to the house and found Isabel in the living room. I was about to give her a biased account of the shortest flight on record when I noticed Uncle Avery quietly entering the house from the side door that led to the garden.
9: What's the matter, Bill? Bruce
1: isn't in the studio anymore.
9: What? Now, Isabel,
8: there's no reason for alarm. I Bruce often goes off into the night like this. Call it a search for beauty or some such rot. And what was it you were after just now outside, Mr. Fairchild? I was looking for my niece, Marlowe. Isabel, the Cousin John telephoned to say he wouldn't be down this weekend. Oh. I didn't know there would be other guests.
9: Oh, just my cousin, John Martin, Phil. Not really a guest. He comes down often.
8: Yeah, too often to suit oh, me. Oh,
9: Uncle Avery, please. You know that I'm fond of him.
8: Yes, but I don't know why. He's a chronic gambler and of no use to anyone. Living at the Wilshire Gardens when he can't afford it.
9: Dining expensive cars. Oh, you're too hard on him. Skipper, Skipper. is Skipper? Yes. Do you know him?
8: Uh, no.
1: No, no, I don't. Well, you're not missing anything, believe me. Oh, I do believe you, Mr. Fairchild. I believe your every word. What? Good night, all. I left the house and headed straight for my car with the Wilshire Gardens in Hollywood in mind. It was just a chance that John Skipper Martin might own a white Panama hat. When I got to the prodigal cousin's bungalow, it was dark inside. So I pressed one hand close to my gun and the other against the doorbell. But there was no answer. The side window was open and I started toward it when a nasty voice greeted me from the shadow of a palm tree.
7: Good evening. Lovely night, isn't it? I hadn't noticed. I've been busy. I know. We've been waiting for you for a long time. We? Uh Uh-huh. Me and my nice shiny revolver here. 38. Oh, I see.
1: Well, you make a handsome couple, and I hope you're both very happy together now. What do you want? I don't want
7: anything. I'm here to give you something.
1: Advice. Close, brother. I've already told you I'm busy, so if this is a heist, let's get it over with fast. You
7: know, I think you're confused. I'm holding the gun, Mr. Martin. Martin? John Skip the Martin. Surprised that I know your name? Why, uh,
1: yes. Yes, I am. I don't recall having had the pleasure.
7: You haven't? People never forget me, Mr. Martin. My tag is Brock. Does that
1: mean anything? No, what do you do? Sing, dance, tell jokes?
7: Yeah, that's it. Last one. I tell jokes. I can't wait. You won't have to, Mr. Martin. I'm going to tell you one right now. It goes like this. Once upon a time, a young punk borrowed $10,000 from a generous gambler on his promise to pay money back within a week. But the young punk never came across. So the gambler told a nice fellow named Brock to call on the young punk and tell him that he had 48 hours in which to get the money together. And that if he didn't, he'd never see the 49th hour. What's the matter, Mr. Martin? Don't you like jokes?
1: Rock grinned shoved his 38 into a shoulder holster and walked away. As soon as he rounded the corner, I went to the open window and climbed in. I rummaged through two closets looking for a white Panama you-know-what. I was about to search a third when I heard something that brought me to a dead stop. It was a cheap door lock. I closed my right hand over the gun in my pocket, moved flush against the side wall and waited. But the moment the door swung open, the telephone rang. And the hulk of a man that entered went straight for it was wearing a gray fedora. Hello? Oh, hello, Isabel. What? Bruce? Are are you sure? But that's impossible. I I mean, things like that just are... Excuse me, Isabel. I, I think I have a visitor. I'll call you back.
3: Reach, Mr. Martin.
1: Who are you? The name is Brock. You owe a client of mine $10,000. He wants his money in 48 hours. I'll get it. I-, I swear I will. I'll have it right here, on time, all of it. How are you going to do that, Mr. Martin? I- I- I've
5: got to wait. Someone's going to give it to me tonight. Why? Why? Oh, because it's the healthy thing to do. That's why.
1: That- that's all you want to know, isn't it? That's all. Good night, Mr. Martin. This is Marlowe, Isabel. I'm calling from a drugstore in Hollywood. Has Bruce returned yet?
9: No, and he won't. He's been kidnapped. What's that? And whoever did it wants $50,000 before morning or we'll never see Bruce alive again.
1: As I walked my car up at the Wilshire Gardens, I felt like my brain had spent the night in a cement mixer. I was about to head back to Malibu when I suddenly saw Skipper Martin dash out of his bungalow and pile into a long, glossy convertible. I followed him out to the Pacific Palisades, where he made a call at a little house which sat on a bluff overlooking the sea. Once he was inside, I moved up quietly and saw that the name on the mailbox was Miss Carla Winters. I crawled up to a lace curtain window where I could see what was going on. One look at Miss Winters made the damage I was doing to my tweeds worthwhile. She was strictly dragon lady, with flaming red hair and a waist you could span with two hands. You were lucky enough to get that close. And the rest of the measurements fit just
9: perfect. Why, you sniveling coward, you wouldn't dare open your mouth about us. Wouldn't I? Listen, Carla, I've got myself. Skipper Martin to look after first, last, and always. You remember that. Why should I? You've always been cheap talk and no more. (laughs) Look at you now. You're in trouble. So what do you do? You holler blackmail. Go on, get out of here. Get out of here before I kill you.
3: And
1: Skipper slammed the front door, stomped to his car, and roared off. I couldn't figure any reason, legitimate reason, that is, for calling on Carl Winters. So I returned to the Fairchild place. Isabel was somewhere between hysteria and collapse over the fact that she and Bruce had less than $2,000 in their own name. Uncle Avery, of course, was more than reluctant to pay the ransom demanded for the return of a man he'd rather not
8: have returned. But his niece won out. All right, Isabel. I'll give you the money. But understand, I'm doing this for you,
9: not for yes, that no yes, good... Uncle Avery, I understand. But can you get that much cash at this hour? The bank... Who are... said
8: anything about banks? You know I don't like them. Money will be in your hands in 30 minutes. In the meantime, tell Mr. Marlowe here what arrangements you've made with your husband's abductors. One minute, Mr. Fairchild. What about the police? The police have already been notified, Mr. Marlowe. They've agreed not to interfere until tomorrow morning. By that time, I suppose we'll have Bruce return to us. To... to us, Uncle Avery? Uh, let slip with the tongue, Isabel. I'm only paying for his return. You take over from there. I don't want him.
1: A half hour later, Avery Fairchild handled me a bundle of bills which added up to $50,000 cash. The bills seemed slightly dirty. The old geezer must have had them buried someplace. For a moment, I couldn't help thinking, boy, to get at this place with a shovel sometime. But then I got back to the more pressing matters at hand. I wrapped up the money in a shoebox and I drove north along the Pacific Coast Highway. I covered the 60 miles to the rendezvous, which was a junkyard near Ventura, in about as many minutes. Then, according to instructions, I slowed down to 10 miles an hour. I blinked my lights twice tossed out the shoebox. I was just about to resume my speed when the headlights of an approaching car fell on a man as he darted back into the junkyard, and I saw what I'd been expecting all the time, a white Panama hat. But I was still playing by the rules, so there was only one thing I could do about it. I slammed my foot down on the accelerator and kept it there until I reached the nearest telephone, where I telephoned Skipper Martin at the Wilshire Gardens. It was just possible that he owned two hats. But that little balloon exploded in a hurry. Hello? Mr. Martin? Yes. Who is this? This is Brock. Remember me? Oh, yes, yes, of course. I've been hoping you'd call. You mean you got the money right now? Well, 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 no, not, not this minute, but I will have it in a couple of hours. You're sure, Mr. Martin?
3: I'm positive, Brock.
1: Now only one thing figured The man in the Panama I had worked for Skipper Martin It had to be An hour later I pulled in at the Fairchild Estate The moment I put my double A over the threshold I knew that the kidnapper too had kept his part of the bargain Ruth Gordon was back safe and
5: sound It happened shortly after you retired Mr. Marlowe I was working in my studio when a man wearing a white, white Panama hat. Yes. But how did you know that, Mr. Marlowe? They're very popular this season, Mr. Gordon.
9: Darling, Mr. Marlowe was a private detective. Huh? But I'll tell you all about that later. Go on with your story.
5: This man was wearing a handkerchief over his face, and he forced me to go along with him at gunpoint. Took me to a car parked in the service driveway and told me to turn around. And I was hit from behind and went out cold. Oh,
9: darling, how terrible.
5: It wasn't pleasant to him. When I came to, I was bound hand and foot, blindfolded and gagged. I had no idea where I was.
8: Oh, but didn't you see anybody before
5: you were released? No, Uncle Ed. Before they let me go, they they hit me again. When I came to that time, I was lying on the road out near Ventura untied. That's about it. I suppose you've told the story to the police already,
8: huh? No, he hasn't, Mr. Marlowe. And what's more, he isn't going to. I'm sorry, but I was forced to light to you earlier this evening. The police mean reporters, and they mean publicity. And I hate publicity. I'm sure you see my point. I wouldn't make book on that, Mr.
1: Fairchild. Secrets like this only encourage kidnappers.
8: Well, since we no longer see eye to eye, Mr. Marlowe, I'd suggest that we consider your services at an end. I'll have my check at your office in the morning. Good night, sir. Avery Fairchild
1: wasn't the kind of a man you argued with. I threw my coat over my arm, tipped my hat to Isabelle, and stepped outside. I hadn't once mentioned Skipper Martin to the family. That might have been a mistake, but I still wanted to look around before I yelled, copper. As I walked past the guest cottage, I decided to go in and check Bruce's studio. Maybe the man in the white pH had left a few odd footprints on the ceiling. I tossed my coat in the corner chair and started through the clutter. Ten minutes later, I found nothing. I was about to leave when I suddenly remembered the picture of a girl in some clouds that Bruce had been so careful to keep out of sight. I hadn't been moved. And when I brought it into the light, I didn't have to look twice. It was the portrait of Carla Winters, the red-headed dragon lady that Skipper Martin had visited. Now things began to add up. At the chauffeur's quarters, there was an outside telephone, and I put through a hurry call to Lieutenant Ibarra at Homicide in L.A. The best I could get was one Sergeant Neely.
3: I'm sorry, Mr. Marlowe, but the lieutenant's out on the call right now. There's some kind of a row
1: uptown. Well, do you know where he is? The address, I mean.
3: Oh, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. It's uh, one of those bungalows at the Wilshire Gardens.
1: The Wilshire Gardens?
3: That's right. What's so special about
1: that? Maybe nothing. I'll know in a minute. Thanks, Neely.
8: This is Marlowe, Ibarra. What brings you to Skipper Martin's
1: at this late hour?
9: Well, it seems as though some person or persons unknown fired a gun several times a little more than an hour ago. Four shots, to be exact.
1: Well, you think Skipper Martin fired
3: him?
8: No, Marlowe, I'm sure Martin didn't fire them. You see, he stopped them. Personally.
1: Before I hung up, I gave Ibarra a quick rundown on the whole story. After making me feel like a schoolboy for keeping him in the dark so long, he told me to sit on the Fairchild's front steps until he got there. Well, it gave me a half hour to kill, most of which I spent walking around aimlessly, trying to get something close to four out of two and two. But I couldn't. Finally, I heard he bar a siren up to the front door. I was about to head for him when the chill in the morning air reminded me that my topcoat was still in Bruce's studio. I went back and got it. When I turned for the door again, I noticed a little slip of paper that had been under the coat fall to the floor. I picked it up. I must have held it for a full minute before I realized what it meant. Just a small slip of paper, and yet, it made everything. The kidnapping, Carla, the murder fall right into place. When I entered the living room at the house, one glance at Isabella and Bruce told me that she already knew about Skipper's death. Only Uncle Avery, who was not one to shed crocodile tears, hadn't changed. Ibarra, of course, was unhappy.
5: Marlowe, we can't run any kind of a police department when every private detective acts like he's the commissioner himself. Why didn't you call me when this business first began to smell?
1: You know better. I'm sorry, Ibarra, and I hate to sound immodest, but I happen to be one of the two men in this room who can name Bruce Gordon's kidnapper and Skipper Martin's killer.
3: You know what you're
9: saying, Marlowe?
1: I think so. The man in the white Panama hat who kidnapped Bruce Gordon, Lieutenant, is Bruce Gordon himself. In other words, Bruce Gordon kidnapped Bruce Gordon. You
8: know what? You're out of your mind, Marlowe. Lass- Am
1: I? Would you still say that, Gordon, if we paid a call to Carla Winters and asked her to hand over the $50,000 of so-called ransom money she's holding for you, too? Or would you, prefer? Stop Gordon,
3: stop her The window he barred! <laughs>
6: tomorrow, Bruce, who eventually
1: planned to divorce Isabel and marry Carla Winters, wanted to have a little stake like $50,000 around first. That's right, Ibarra. But Skipper Martin knew about Bruce and Carla's plans to marry later, and he tried to blackmail them to pay off his gambling debts. That's why he came to Bruce's cottage on the sly. However, he got there just in time to see Bruce leave of his own free will and therefore knew later that he couldn't have been kidnapped, which gave him two holes over Bruce. That's right. Thought he made a mistake when he went to Carla's house and got too demanding because she told Bruce about it and before he uh, released himself, he took care of Skipper with four gunshots to be exact. Charming people, aren't they, Barra? Lovely. Sometimes I think I should shoot higher and save the state a lot of money. And he almost got away with it. Uh, by the way, Marlowe, how do you know that Bruce was the man in the white Panama hat? I was pretty certain, but I got my proof accidentally. Promise not to repeat this, Ivana? Yeah. Well, I practically fell over a little slip of paper in his studio. It was a receipt from a department store, and it was made out to Bruce Gordon for... One
5: Panama hat?
1: Uh Uh-huh. Nothing else but. When I finally got back to my place on Franklin Avenue, the sun was already up the people who work at nice, sane jobs were beginning to fill the streets. I'd been on the go for a steady 24 hours, so I could think of nothing but my bed. I was about to put my key in the lock when a next-door neighbor walked by, bid me a cheery good morning and started down the corridor. Now, that alone wouldn't have disturbed my sleep, but why, why did he have to be wearing a white Panama hat?
10: Well, listeners, two episodes for you today, that's right. Because you lovelies are worth it. And also, for the love of restoration and listening to two awesome audio dramas from the Philip Marlowe series, I particularly love the first one. My favourite opening line yet is, My opinion changed because of a pig. (laughs) It had me in stitches for a couple of minutes. Not because it's hilarious on its own, but just so unexpected listeners if you're keen to support me visit itunes and leave a review if you leave a written review i'll read it out aloud as my thank you to you and if you can support the show with donations visit patreon.com forward sfgt and donate where all funds fly straight into producing this show now i want to thank my supporters my special patreon peeps i first owed night titan maya the bloodhound detective maya Thank you so much for your contribution. I've been able to source some new music genres and update my existing toolkits to accommodate for different sounds in my future episodes. I've also been able to polish up my editing skills thanks to your lovely self providing me access to RX Tools, the very same tool I use for my Philip Marlowe episodes in repairing them and restoring them. So, thank you so much. You are a legend. And again, for being so very, very special. Thank you, Maya. And my white tea warlord, long Longarm Larry. Leza, thanks to your amazing support, I'm able to cover my hosting costs this month. I've also put your donations directly into a new set of sound effects and Photoshop brushes. You might have seen the new artwork around on the stone in the stream. Yep, that's thanks to your lovely self. Not to mention covering the website costs to host episodes. Thank you immensely for your support, Leza and you're helping this show keep the lights bright and pumpin. Cheers, man. And my second white tea warlord, Paige, the Pistol Whip Popper, thank you immensely, Paige, for your support. I've been putting to good use a new equalizer tool that'll help balance my audio, and I've been working on the new microphone with new software. Thanks to your support, Paige, I'm able to actually bring even better quality audio to your lovely ears. Even though right now it's windy as hell where I live, you can barely hear it or not hear it at all. Thank you, Paige, for being awesome. And my ever-amazing El Gray Enforcers, I'm lucky to have. Just Heather, Juicebox Andy, Peter Ravelli, Dolphin and Cow, Michelangelo Yacone, divided by zero, Leah Fasig, and Alia Arcane. Thank you all for supporting me in the way you do, and thank you, listener, for taking the time out of your day to listen and join me for an old-time radio story. Join me Wednesday for some more Stone in the Stream, and this Friday, I'm aiming to have the rest of Sada Abe Part 2, the conclusion of the murderer of Kichizo Ishida. Thanks for listening, mate, and as always, till next we meet.